Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we've got Fernando Angelucci with the Titan Wealth Group, and he flew in from Chicago, Illinois, to talk about how he's done $50 million in self-storage in the last three years. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. Question I get all the time is how do I become one of the 100 millionaires? The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you take consistent action, you will become one. If you want to get there faster, send me a DM on Instagram and we'll see if we can help you get there just a little bit faster. If you get value out of the show, please tag a friend below or share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Fernando to answer. You ready? Yeah. All right. So first question is, what got you into real estate? Yeah. (laughs) So when I was 16 years old, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it basically changed the entire trajectory of my life. I came to the United States, or my parents came to the United States, and because I'm the son of immigrants, they wanted me to kind of have the old school American dream. So go to school, get good grades, go to college, get good grades, and then you know, go get a job, work there for 40 years, retire the pension. Obviously, that's not the way it's working anymore. Um, so I, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I went to my dad and I told him, you know, I, I don't know about going to school. I, I kind of want to do this real estate thing. And then he basically said over my dead body. So he said, go, go to school, get a, a degree that can be your backup. You can get any degree as long as it ends in the words engineering. Um, <laughs> so I did that. I actually did get a, a job with a Fortune 50 company with a pension. But then six months in, um, I, you know, I was working 5 a.m. to about 9 p.m. It was pretty tough as salary, so they didn't pay me overtime at all. Yeah. And, uh, so the more you work, the lower your hourly rate. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I said, hey, this is probably going to be the end of the road here. So started looking at different courses and books and, you know, going to RIA meetings, meetups, that type of stuff. And then around month 13 is when I quit my job. And then I had to figure out how I was going to pay my mortgage or my uh, rent and my grocery bill for the next like six months. So the very first thing I did, which I don't recommend people do, is I applied for like 62 credit cards overnight. <laughs> I got 12 approved. And when nice. all 12 came in, I cash advanced about $96,000 off of them. And then that's how I paid for my real estate course. Wow. And then started doing wholesaling on the side. Yeah, definitely not a recommended <laughs> tactic. <laughs> All right, so you graduated. Okay, so you're 16, mm-hmm. and you say your parents are immigrants. What, from what country? Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. All right, so Angelucci and Brazil. Yeah, so my father is full-blooded Italian, and okay. it's because my great-grandmother fled from Italy during the war and emigrated to southern Brazil. So my mom's full-blooded Brazilian, my dad's full-blooded Italian, and they met in Chicago in church. Got it. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So uh, you grow up immigrant, um, get a good job, be an engineer. So you read the book when you were 16 yep. and it altered your mind. But you still, I mean, at 16, you're still in high school. Right. Which I, it's amazing that you read that in high school. You graduate high school, you go to college. Right. Four year degree? Four year degree. And then what was your major? Uh, it was ag bioengineering. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Ag bioengineering. And then you worked at a big company for how long? Yes, yeah, so I worked at Dow Chemical for 13 months. 13 months. Mm-hmm. And you were able to persist. I mean, were you, were you like daydreaming about real estate? Like, what, what was your thought process like as you're going through this whole process? Yeah. So freshman year of college, um, to help kind of pay through school and get extra cash, I actually started a painting company. 
some of those like college pro or college works uh, that call different names at different universities. So that was my first kind of experience with business ownership. And then at that point throughout college, I read every book that Kiyosaki put out, all of his advisor series. And then every once in a while, he'll do a book with like a different guru. So then I start reading all of their books. I start going to seminars. So I did all of that. I was ready to start investing by the time I graduated college. I just didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of put it on the shelf for about six months as I was getting onboarded at Dow Chemical. I was um, out in Des, Mo- Des Moines, Iowa. And then as soon as I realized like, hey, I, I'm not going to stay here long term. I can't do real estate on the side and uh, do this 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. job every day. That's when I decided, okay, I'm going to quit. And so knowing myself and reading a lot of books on motivation, I realized that I needed to burn all the bridges or mm-hmm. else I'd always have the you know, thought in the back of my mind was like, well, if it didn't work out in real estate, I can always, you know, go back to my boss and see if he'll give me a job. Yeah. So I, I quit kind of like in a hail of, you know, fire, really. So I, I called my boss. This is my two weeks notice. Then two days later, I called him again. I said, actually, today's my last day. <laughs> and meet me at the dealership tomorrow at 6 a.m. I'm dropping off. They gave me a company car. So I was mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm dropping off my car. If you're not there, I'm just going to hand my keys to whoever's at the dealership. <laughs> So like really burn the bridges on oh, yeah. the way out. <laughs> oh yeah. So you're at, at, at this point, you're how old? I'm 22. You're 22 yeah. and you're going all in and not just going all in. I mean, shoot, maxing out all these credit cards, right. which is pretty high interest rate, I imagine. Yeah. The lowest one was 16% and then the highest one was 23.99%. <laughs> all right. So you're shoving all your chips in the middle. Mm-hmm. All right. How did you know that working at Dow was not for you? Because there are a lot of people that kind of think about quitting and so on. Yeah. So when I looked at it, you know, I already knew that when you exchange your time for money, there's always going to be a ceiling. So I wanted to start getting assets that would cash flow and make money for me passively. Um, while I was at Dow, I started to try to dabble on the weekends and at night, which is extremely difficult because I, would tra- I was a traveling salesman, basically. I covered the eastern half of Iowa. So I wouldn't be home you know, I'd stay in hotels two or three nights a week. By the time I did get home, it'd be around 9 p.m., 10, 10 p.m. So I'd only had a few hours before I'd go to sleep and start all over again. And then I'd have the weekends to myself sometimes. And I just was getting beat. I mean, you know, we're in Collective Genius together. The, the major wholesaler in, our, in Des Moines when I was coming up was Mark Lane. He was yeah. in the group with us. So every time I tried to get to a property, you know, on the weekend or after hours, Mark Lane would be there, like three other wholesalers would be there, and then like four cash buyers would be there. I'm just like, and I didn't know what I was doing yet. So it it just wasn't going to work out. So at that point, I realized if I'm going to do this and I'm really going to, you know, change the trajectory of my life, I have to start now. I have to put all my trips in because there's this concept that I've heard other people talk about where you start getting comfortable and you say, oh, well, I'll, I'll quit when I match my income. Mm-hmm. But then every year you stay at your nine to five, your income starts slowly going up. So now your target to leave also starts going slowly up. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 22, 23 years old at the time. So I didn't have kids. I didn't have, you know, a wife. I didn't really have anything that was kind of like I was responsible for. So I knew if, hey, if this doesn't work out, I can live in my car. That's fine. Like yeah. I can survive off of ramen for, you know, 60 days. It's not a big deal. Yeah. So I've just figured it'd be easier to make the switch now as opposed to 10 years into me being an engineer where my income, you know, doubled or tripled by the time. What were we making at that time? So I came out of college. I was making 55000 a year. They gave me a 401k match, a pension, 
and then a uh, expense account and then a truck. So it was pretty good, pretty good job coming out of college. And what was your first real estate deal? It was a wholesale deal. I got a deal under contract. I uh, didn't know what I was doing. I was surprised I made any money. I couldn't find a buyer. So I actually called Mark Lane. I said, hey, Mark, I know you're the big dog in town. Can you bring a buyer for me? He said, sure. So I found a buyer. It was a $5,000 assignment fee. So I got to keep half of that. I made $2,500. And that was my, like, that was the proof for me that it, this, this was going to work. I just needed to scale it up so that I could start paying off these credit cards. <laughs> what, were, what was your monthly payment on those credit cards? It was a lot. Um, so I, I put together a spreadsheet based off of loan constant as opposed to interest rate. So loan constant is a calculation that takes into account your minimum payment in addition to your interest. Mm -hmm. So you may have a deal that, or you may have a car that say is 0% interest, but it's a $500 monthly payment versus a car that's 24% interest, but the monthly payment's 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. So I would attack the, the higher loan constant deals or cards first. So my minimum nut per month was like 4,500 bucks. Um, but I was, I, was, I was paying off at a, a clip about eight to 10,000 a month. That's awesome. So you got that first deal, walk us through, what was that first deal like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a two flat. Um, the owner lived in one unit, the other unit was in between renters. It needed a ton of uh, maintenance. There's a lot, a lot of deferred maintenance that was going on. Um, and the owner wanted to stay in the property for a few months to get kind of like their things together, get some cash in pocket before going. So a lot of moving parts. Once I got under contract, at that point, I just realized I needed, I needed to basically tap some expert help. And that's when I brought in Mark. And Mark mm -hmm. just kind of ran the rest of the deal for us. Got it. How did you, this is while you were working, you already quit? This is while I was working. Yeah. Okay. So cold call, direct mail, door knock. Yeah, so when I first started out, I lived three blocks away from the county courthouse mm -hmm. in Des Moines. So I would, every Friday, I would go to the courthouse and I would manually, they had no way to export any data from their terminal. So I would manually write down like every probate lead that came in, cross check to see if they owned property inside of the estate. And then I would handwrite a letter and an envelope and mail them out and then have calls coming in. I didn't know how to skip trace at the time. So the, all I did was, was direct mail. But that's hustle, right? Yeah. So Friday, go to the courthouse, manually extract the probate records, cross-check it, and then manually write the mail and mail it. Yeah, I, I was there. I was basically like George Costanza's wife, like licking all the <laughs> envelopes. I, to this day, I still remember, I can do 100 letters. So print them out, um, fold them, stuff them, lick the envelope, address the letter, and put the stamp on. I could do 100 letters in an hour and 46 minutes. Dang, so you headed down to a science. Yeah, could, well, because immediately I said, okay, I can't do this forever, and I'm going to need to start outsourcing this very quickly. So then I, everything from the beginning was process and procedure all the way through so that I could start scaling quickly. Got it. Um, how long from when you started going to the courthouse till you got your first deal? Uh, probably about 30 to 45 days. So that's when I first got my, my first call that came in. Um, well, actually, I'm sorry, it was my second call. The first call I got was from the attorney general of Iowa because somebody reported me as being like a scammer, a scam artist <laughs> of some kind. So the attorney general called me just trying to inquire, like, what's going on? One of my constituents said that you're trying to scam people out of money. I have your, a copy of your letter in front of me. And I just had to, like, level them, like, listen, I, 
I took out a bunch of credit card debt. I paid 30 grand for this real estate course. In the course, they told me to go to the probate office, download the list, send out letters, and then if anybody calls, to try to offer them a cash offer and, and then sell that contract to one of my investors in my network. And he said, all right, I mean, that sounds legal. I'm like, that it, for all I know, it's legal. And he, and he said, okay, that's all I needed. So then yeah. the second call is when I, got, when I got my first deal. And how long until you close your first deal? It took us about 45 days to close. Okay. And I ask this because there's a lot of people that are frustrated, right? I think we live in a microwave age where like, if I start wholesaling today, I want to close my first deal within 30 days. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So it took, it sounds like 45 plus 45. So like three months yeah. to get your first deal. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. So then did you continue down that road? I mean, you're building out your processes. Did you continue down this path or did you alter your path? So wholesaling was always a means to an end. I wanted to build a passive income, but I didn't have the money to put down payment money down. So did a couple wholesale deals and then immediately bought my first multifamily property. It was, uh, it was a tough property. It was about an hour and a half south of Des Moines in the middle of nowhere, a little town called Osceola. I bought the five unit property for $40,000 using credit cards. Um, again. You swipe it at the title company? Yeah. <laughs> So bought that and I actually came in with a, a partner. So I said, hey, his name was Paul. Paul, you use your credit cards. I will manage it. I'll do the, the improvement. I'll cash flow it and then I'll pay you back. And then you'll get 50% of the cash flow on top of that. So two years in, it actually worked out. Bought it for 40, sold it for 48. Um, it cash flowed at about a 8 to 9% cap rate uh, month over month. So that was pretty good. Um, but I learned a lot investing in that that was my first you know rental property and it was class d if i'm being like nice about it so i learned a lot about um operating in challenging areas and that later on helped out quite a bit because i started buying multifamily properties on the south side of chicago which is pretty tough area if you if you don't know what you're doing you can lose a lot of money what did you learn with yeah so was it Osceola? Osceola, yeah. I learned learned a lot. So number one, always pay for a super thorough inspection of everything. I learned that the hard way because once I bought the property, I first of all, I bought it without an inspector. So by the time we got the property under control, we found out that basically the plumbing was like caulk tubes and duct tape. Literally, we found caulk tubes between like pieces of plumbing that were duct taped together. (laughs) Uh, The electrical was shot. Did it work? It worked, but I mean, like there was water pouring somewhere into the basement. Um, uh, I, I should have made sure that I looked at all the leases before I came in. I basically took the owner at, at his word. And it was my first deal, and I'm one of those guys where I, I learned trial, trial by fire. It's the fastest way to learn, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, man, it was, it was tough. Eventually, I hired a property manager on that deal because I just couldn't handle getting calls at like 1 a.m. I... I had this one tenant that would go to jail like literally every 45 days because he'd get picked up on some petty drug charges. And he would use his one call to call me at like one in the morning to basically tell me that he wasn't going to pay rent that month because he was in jail. It's like, oh, man. So, so learned, learned a lot. So get a real inspection. Yeah. Don't cheap out on it. Yeah. And re- review your leases. Review leases. And then also that, you know, what you the rate on paper is not what you're going to get. You know, when people are chasing yield, if you go to these more challenging areas, even though on paper it says that, you know, you'll make a 10 or a 12% performance rate. 
perform is great, but then people don't pay you, everything breaks, like, and I didn't have any budgeting for that upfront. Yeah. So learned a ton, and that was where kind of the, the start of my transition away from residential rental and into something that did not deal with people, which eventually turned into self-storage. Right. I mean, I, I still remember like looking at some of these, as, as a, an investor, having realtors send me deals, right? This is before I got on my own. I would look at these returns, like these don't make sense. Right. How could it be like twice as good as a good part of town? Like, do I just want to be a slumlord? And you find out you did not want to be a slumlord. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at, at the height of my portfolio, we had either 53 or 59 units, all in like classy, classy areas. Rural Iowa, rural Indiana, uh, south side Chicago, and it got to the point where the strip, you know, they call it passive income, but nothing about it felt passive at all. I mean, I was working 60, 70 hours a week just on our rental business, and I, I said, I don't want this. I, we're done with this. It's one of the, I don't want, maybe lie is too strong of a word, but very misleading <laughs> in the education space. Sure. Right? Let's go get this mailbox money and collect some passive income. No, it's not passive at all. If you know, the only thing that I really consider mailbox money in the real estate space is if you're an LP on a syndication. That's really about it. Any yeah. any other type of real estate that you do, it doesn't matter if it's rentals, flips, wholesale. There's nothing passive passive yeah. about it. So then, was there a point when you had all these properties on the re on the rental side, you know, multifamily and other parts of the uh, of of the country? Was there a point where you're like ready to throw your hands in the air? Like, what the heck am I thinking? Yeah, so in 2016, I met a mutual friend of ours, Scott Myers, and uh, he started talking about self-storage, and his tagline was, no tenants, no toilets, no trash. And I was like, those are literally my three biggest issues right now. <laughs> so I uh, ended up re researching more and more about self-storage, and this was around 2016, and I, I was telling people for the last year and a half that the market was going to crash in 2018. Like, mm -hmm. I've been saying it for three years up until this point. So I started offloading a lot of my properties um, starting in 2017. Most of 2018 is when I disposed of most of multifamily and then I had three more single family homes that I sold. Uh, that was the last rentals that I owned and those were in two, end of 2019. So as I'm offloading all my properties, then I say, okay, well, I have history as a wholesaler. We still have a pretty large wholesale operation in Chicago at the time. Maybe I can translate what I've learned on the residential space into the self-storage space. I know if I can wholesale a self-storage facility to someone else at a higher price, I'm probably running the numbers right. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about self-storage is the, you know, it's, it's all cap rate driven. So comps aren't really a thing. I don't have to worry about a wholesaler down the street knocking all the values down on one of my rental properties because somebody sold him at 50% off. Mm -hmm. It's easier to get capital for commercial deals. Um, they, the banks are a lot more lenient when it comes to more complicated or complex equity structures or equity stacks. So I said, okay, let's do this. Did exactly what I learned in wholesale and residential, pulled the list, did handwritten mailers, sent them out. The first list was like 7,000 people or 7,000 storage owners, and we, got, we started getting deals coming in. Uh, still didn't really know what I was doing, so we're just underwriting, underwriting, put them under contract, then we wholesale our first two off. And I was like, okay, looks like I'm running these numbers right. The third one, I said, we're going to keep this one. So found a 
kind of like a first base type of deal. It wasn't a slam dunk, but I, I just wanted a deal that I could learn on that wasn't going to have a lot of downside risk. So we bought a facility in Yorkville, Illinois. It's about an hour and a half, maybe two and a half hours with traffic from Chicago. Bought it at a seven cap, 100% occupied, no security, no office, no utilities. Um, the owner hadn't raised rents in 10 plus years. So we came in, we purchased it for about a million dollars and immediately raised the rents by 26%, like day one with the estoppel letter sent out. It's like, your new rate is 26% higher. Then we started attacking the expenses, dropped the property taxes, dropped the property insurance, um, reduced the management costs, and then we leveraged technology to get the lease-ups going a lot faster. And within maybe nine months, I had done the entire value add on that property and increased the value by over half a million dollars. So that was the first deal that I bought. And I didn't want to buy another deal until I fully grasped how to operate and manage that one. So we ran that first facility for about eight months. And then the subsequent eight months, once I ran that facility, I, I almost treated it as if I had to go to an airport to get to that facility because I wanted to get out of Illinois. It's a really tough state to buy residential and multifamily properties in. Turns out it also translated to commercial as well. The property oh. taxes are through the roof. With storage, your two largest costs are labor and property taxes. So we ran it as if we had to go to a different state to operate it. So once we got that down in the first eight months, in the subsequent eight months, we bought another six self-storage facilities out of state, outside of Illinois. And that's when we really started to kind of go up pretty quickly. So the property taxes component... I know um, here in Arizona, we don't really care so much about property taxes. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, but in Texas, we had a rental property out there. And it's just normal that every year you just challenge your property taxes. Right. Is that what was, happens here? Yeah. So we're doing the same thing. Um, I'll give you kind of a, an example of how crazy the property taxes are in sh the Chicagoland area. So I bought a, the last three properties that I bought, that we bought them on seller finance from the, the seller. I bought them each for about 45000 40 to 45000 a piece. The final year when I decided enough is enough, let's sell these things, I got a new tax bill and all of the taxes were between eight and $10,000 per property. So I was paying almost 25% of the value of the property in taxes per year. And I said, it's not even worth it to contest it. So that's why we, we started switching over. But the storage side is the same way. So there's two ways that we'll attack the property tax expense. The first is before we buy the property, when we put an offer on the property, we'll actually separate that purchase agreement. Self-storage, yes, it's real estate, but it's also a business. So there's, there's value in the business side of that asset. So what we'll do is we'll go on the purchase agreement. We'll say, okay, I'm going to give you, let's say it's a million-dollar property. I'm going to give you 60% or $600,000 for the land and the improvements thereon, all the buildings. And then the other 40%, I'm going to give you as a business goodwill purchase agreement. So buying the business, the business assets, and the goodwill in that business. So ideally, when the property tax assessor goes to look at the transaction to reassess, all they see is the land and improvement purchase agreement at 600000 I get taxed off that 600000 amount as opposed to the million-dollar purchase Got price. It. Now, the second part is right after we close on the property, we engage a property tax attorney. And usually we want somebody that's been in the business in the local area for like 25 or 30 years. He goes, you know, his kids go to school with the tax assessor's kids. They know each other. That's the type of guy you want to find in each yeah. one of these markets. So we hired him. 
And then he went and contested the taxes and he was able to drop them another 30%. Nice. So that's always like number one. So going back, you acquired the third one, but you had two beforehand that you wholesaled. Correct. Tell me about that very first one that you found. How did you find it? What was involved in that? Yeah, I mean, same thing as, you know, what all the other wholesalers talking on here. We, we bought a list. Uh, I think I used Info USA for that first list. Sent them direct mail. We hit each seller at once every six months. Um, it was a, uh, it was like a divorce situation where the, the seller in, basically got it in the settlement from her husband, but her passion was the three hair salons that she owned, not the storage facility that she got as a settlement from her ex-husband, but she just wanted to offload it. So we came in, we valued it and uh, basically gave it, gave her asking price and then wholesale it off to another buyer at $40,000 spread. So what did you estimate that property to be worth, if you recall? Uh, so we had it under contract for, I think, 650000 and then we sold it for six ninety with a terminal value. The nice thing about storage is you can turn the, the value around pretty quick, usually in 12 to 18 months. So I think at the end of eight month, 18 months, we valued that thing at about $1.1 million if you did all of the value add that was there. Got it. So, so it was you look at deal. the potential, Yeah. right? So you got this property, you say, okay, if we did this, this, and this, this all works out well, then it should be worth this in 12 to 18 months. Yeah, so at the time for that type of property, it was a classy facility. It was a second generation self-storage facility. Um, we knew on the open market with a, with a broker, it would sell for about six and a half, seven percent 7%. We got under contract at a 10% cap rate and sold it to our, our buyer at about like a 9.4, 9.6, something like that. Um, and then as long as he did the value add that we told him to do and then listed it with an agent, he would have easily been able to get one, 1.1 million on the value. You want to elaborate on what a cap rate of 10% and 9% is? Sure. So cap rate is your net operating income divided by your purchase price. So with storage, like I said, it's not valued based off of comparables, it's valued based off the income generating potential. So we know very, very quickly, you can take the property down, you can raise rents, you can auction off the people that aren't paying, you can add auxiliary profit centers like selling locks, boxes, moving supplies, truck rentals, um, you can sell insurance and keep anywhere between 60 to 90% of the premium. So that's just all on the income side. On the expense side, I can drop the taxes, I can drop the property insurance, I can put in technology to help with the management so I can drop my labor costs from maybe one and a half or two full-time individuals down to maybe one part-time person or a lot of our facilities are unmanned completely because we fully automated them. And what we realized based off of, let's just use an exit cap rate of 8%, every $100 I either save or make per month increases the value of my facility by $15,000. So that's what I told all the managers, that's what I told everybody in the company, I said every dollar counts Every time you save me $100 a month, that's an extra 15 grand that goes onto the valuation. Yeah. And that's a great baseline. Um, so you, you, you say you made first forward in the first one. How about the second one? Do you remember that? Second one was a small deal. It was in central Illinois. Um, I think we only sold it for like a $30,000 assignment fee. Uh, those were in the beginning when we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't know where the market was. We, haven't develop, we didn't develop a self-storage buyers list yet. Once we started treating the storage business and its constituent parts, right, because we had the 
we had the basically the just like in residential we had the wholesale lane in storage we had the buy fix and and sell or the fix and flip lane but the only difference was instead of it being a three or six month flip it's a 12 or 18 month flip and then we had the buy and hold deals so once we started treating each one of those three separate verticals as kind of its own business unit and built up our self-storage buyers list, we realized that there was a huge disparity in the market. Right now, for example, you look at any self-storage listing that a broker puts out there from the big houses, right? Marcus Millichap, Newmark Knight Frank, all the big guys, you're seeing deals at four and a half, maybe 5% cap rate with a pro forma of six and a half, 7%. Mm-hmm. And we were getting these deals at 10% current with pro formas in, you know, like the low teens, maybe high teens. So once we built out the, the buyers list, then our wholesale spread started getting really big to the point, I think the largest one we did was we put a $800,000 property under contract in rural Iowa, and then we sold it to a 1031 buyer for a million 32. So we made a $232,000 assignment fee in 45 days or so. That's awesome. Yeah. So you wholesale two deals, acquire eight or acquire one, learn it. I imagine you're wholesaling the whole time. Right. And then you acquire another eight. Yeah. So we started using just the wholesale proceeds to fund the down payment on the deals. We have three main funding sources. The, if we, if we want to really tear our hair out, we can go with SBA again because it's a business. We can get small business administration financing, which you can get into a self storage facility for 10 to 15% down. And it's a 25 year fully amortized loan. The second piece is going with our local banks. If they know what we're doing, if we have the track record, we'll use them almost as a bridge. We'll get like a five year balloon. We'll put anywhere between 20 to 25% down on a 25, 20 to 25 year AM. And then we have our hard money lenders, some of which are in Collective Genius with us, right? right? Uh, Bill Fairman, Wendy Sweet, Jonathan Davis, all really good guys. I've been telling them that they need to lend on storage for the last three, four years. They finally started to do a few with me. So it's been good. So we do all that as a bridge. So for our, you know, we have our three different exit strategies. Wholesale, but when we put together our wholesale packages, because storage is such a large transaction, we usually have to do a lot more than a typical residential wholesaler would do. So we have to get, basically start putting the loan in place for our new borrower or buyer. We put them in contact with all the, the consultants they need, right? Because you're going to have to have do a phase one environmental report. You're going to have to do a PCA property condition assessment. You're going to need to get um, a commercial inspector to come through. So we basically tee it up just in case they can't close in time and we have to come back and buy. As you know, you know, your word is basically your bond and that's kind of your reputation. If we tell sellers that we're going to close on a certain date and we don't, then all of a sudden our reputation goes down the toilet and storage is a, you know, real estate in general is very niche, but then a niche inside the niche is storage, right? There's only about 70,000 self-storage facilities in the entire United States, right? That's, that's the amount of houses in a small town, you know what I'm saying? So um, we have to, we basically put the entire package together as if we're going to close because sometimes we do have to close on the deal in case a seller backs out. The second exit strategy is the fix and flip. So that we're pretty good at. We very easy to get in and out. We use the bridge financing, but then the last piece is that buy and hold. And with the buy and hold, I don't want to stay in the SBA. I don't want to stay with the bridge lenders at the banks. What I really want to get to is the CMBS market, the commercial, commercial mortgage backed securities market. And for your listeners out there that don't know, the commercial mortgage-backed securities market basically is these large bankers, investment bankers like J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley. 
they will put out a billion dollars of self-storage loans. They'll wrap them together and then they'll sell them off to Wall Street as like a coupon, right? To get paid four and a half percent or six percent on your investment. But to get those types of loans, they need to be very aggressive, especially in the storage space. So if we can get to that CMBS level, we're looking at 30 year amortized all the way up to 40 year amortized loans, depending on the investment banker that's putting together the deal. We're looking at anywhere between five to 10 year balloons. all the way, we can go, depending on how, how much leverage, we can go 65% loan to value and get 10 years interest only, or we can go all the way up to 75% loan to value and get no interest only. But the kicker is, is that it's all non-recourse. Hmm. So you don't want to buy a deal with a CMBS loan because it has some really nasty prepayment penalties. Basically, when they sell it off to Wall Street, Wall Street's relying on the income coming off of that loan. So if you want to say you increase the value after getting that CMBS loan and you want to get out or refinance into a different loan, you basically have to pay all the interest you would have paid over that 10 years. So it only makes sense to go into those loans once you've done all the value add. And that's why we use, you know, the Carolina hard monies of the world. We use the banks as a bridge, stabilize it, and then refinance into the CMBS market, typically with Morgan Stanley's who we use. Got it. All right. So have an idea of why you switch into self-storage. Would you care to elaborate sure. other reasons why you want why someone should do self-storage versus residential multifamily? Yeah, so I have a presentation that I, I basically give to lenders and to prospective investors that are switching mm-hmm. from one real estate asset to storage, and it's nine main reasons, but for brevity, I'll, I'll touch on some of the, the key ones. Number one, in the last 30 years, it's had the highest average annual return of any other real estate asset class. Uh, multifamily and residential has returned about 13% annual average return over the last 30 years. The S&P has returned about 8%. Storage has returned about 17%. So that 4% difference between storage and residential multifamily may not seem like a lot, but you got to realize that's 4% compounding over 30 years. So mm-hmm. Let's say 30 years ago, you had $100,000 to invest. If you put that 100 into the S&P, today you'd have about half a million dollars. If you put into residential or multifamily properties, you'd have 1.7 to $1.8 million. So it's still a pretty good return. If you put that same 100,000 into self-storage, today you'd have a little over $4.1 million. So double the return of multifamily and residential because of that 4% compounding return. And that's appreciation? No, that's, that's just average annual return. So that is that taking into account appreciation as well as cash flow. Okay. But not depreciation. No, no, no. So, All right. So we're comparing to residential, not that much difference in depreciation component, but we're comparing as a stock market. There's another bonus as well. Yeah. And on the depreciation side, we get an even larger bonus on top of residential and multifamily because of cost segregation studies. Mm-hmm. So the way that self-storage facilities are built, you can cost segregate a lot of that 39 and a half year depreciation schedule down to five, seven, and 15 years. Got it. And then what you can do on top of that is you can take bonus depreciation on anything less than 20 year schedule. So there's deals that I bought for 800,000 and in the first year I got $160,000 back in depreciation just using that strategy. So I think we should just clarify two things real quick. First was depreciation, and then let's talk about cost side. Because I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, what, the, what are you guys talking about? So let's start with depreciation, and, let's talk, and then let's talk about cost side. Yeah, so depreciation is, 
in the government's eyes, the useful life of that asset. So residential, I believe, is 27 years, correct? 27 and a half. 27 and a half. So if you buy a property, say, for a million dollars, that's a residential property, every, you basically, every year you get to take one twenty-seventh and a half of the value of that property to write off against your taxes. Same thing with multifamily. When you get into commercial assets, the timeline's a little bit la- larger, so it goes up to 39-year depreciation schedule. And the same thing, you get one thirty-ninth of that every year to write off against your income. It's like phantom loss, if you will. You're not actually paying the government, it's just what you get to write off. Wear and taxes. tear, the expected wear and tear, even though it doesn't actually ever happen. Right. But that, that's a very crude method of figuring out how long an asset's going to last. You're saying that everything's going to last 27 years? Well, how about your carpets? We know every time you change a tenant over, you're going to have to usually rip up the carpets or at least clean them. You're going to have to paint. You know, the doors get shot. So what cost segregation does is an, a civil engineer typically will go into the property and they will literally break down every component piece of that property and say, well, you know, these rolling doors aren't going to last 39 years. They're only going to last seven. So we're going we're gonna to reduce those to seven and then assign a value to those doors. And, you know, all these trim and flooring, that's only going to last, say, five years. So that we're going we're gonna to break those down as well and assign a value. So then what ends up happening is you start moving a lot of property from, um, from real property into personal property is what they designate it at. And those personal properties are uh, depreciated over five, seven, or 15 years. And then because of the 2017 Tax and Jobs Act, we also get 100% bonus depreciation, which means that the, fir- the depreciation that we can take in the first 20 years, we can take it all year one and then take that additional 20 on top of that over the next 20 years as well. Yeah, it's crazy what you can do. So then when you compare that again, comparing it to the stock market, I don't think it's a fair comparison no. whatsoever. Right. Um, so that's reason number one, highest okay. return. So you'd think, okay, it's got the highest return. That must mean high risk, right? Mm-hmm. High risk, high reward. But what we found in the data is that's actually the opposite. Self-storage is one of the most recession-resilient assets, again, going over the last 30 to 40 years. The last three recessions, it has shown to, to outperform all the other real estate assets that we had out there. So the main things that we like to look at are in-tech solutions. So they, they do a, a bunch of data and reports for banks and lenders. We also look at TREP, which is another T-R-E-P-P. It's another research firm that does a bunch of kind of loan-based, lender-based research. And then we look at Wells Fargo Securities data as well. And what we found is self-storage typically defaults at a rate of anywhere between 10 to 40 times less than multifamily over the last 30 years. And when you look at recessions specifically, during recessions like 2007 to 2009, Self-storage was defaulting at a rate of like 1.1%, whereas multifamily was defaulting at a rate of like 15.8% during that time. Wow. Then let's, let's bring it up current. We just, you know, we're going through a pandemic right now. It's been a weird, you know, it's not the recession we thought was going to happen. It's more of like a K-shaped recovery, but same thing. In the first three quarters of the pandemic, of the 1,700 loans that were made by the CMBS lenders, only three were more than 30 days delinquent. At that same period of time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of 1,800% or 18 times that of self-storage. So downside risk mitigation, but also higher return. Yeah. Uh, So you have 15 self-storage facilities. 16 now. 16. 
So the numbers have updated since you put in this information. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Impressive. And it's throughout the country. So then, you know, let's say I'm excited to do self storage. Listen to this. We've done this interview. I'm sold. I want to do this. Yeah. What's the first thing I do to buy a self storage unit? Get educated. That's always going to be number one. You know, you want to make sure that you're stepping into the arena with as much information as possible. So the things I usually recommend people, there are awesome self-study courses online. Go on Bigger Pockets. There's a huge community of people on there that will help you do your storage deals. Facebook has a bunch of self-storage kind of investors and operators groups as well that you can ask some good questions to. And then I've always been a fan of paying someone that is five, 10 years ahead of me in my career path to teach me what I want to do. And the caveat is five to 10 years. The reason I say that is if you get, if you hire a guy that's been doing storage for 40 years, he's literally on such a different level that the things to him that are, or her that are almost innate or in the back of the mind, they'll, they'll never bring up to you because they, they don't even think about it. You're going to lose a lot of that information. So don't pick a mentor that's too far ahead of you. Pick somebody that's about five, 10 years ahead of you and where you want to be. It's going to help a lot. And then there's courses all, you know, all over the place. Scott Meyer is a really good friend of mine. Uh, he's in Collective Genes with us. His course is absolutely fantastic. It's the one that I started on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it was like a home study course. You get like a binder with how to value self-storage. And then it also comes with a ticket for like a three-day, you know, live event, the Self-Storage Academy. So I really recommend doing that. And then once you, once you get through all that and you're educated, then start, just start doing it. You know, the problem that a lot of people face and myself included because of the engineering background is this analysis paralysis. You think that if only I had a little bit more information, then I'll be ready. But the problem is you'll never have enough information to be ready. So you just gotta, you just gotta go into it and don't look for a slam dunk deal on your first deal. Typically those slam dunk deals have a lot of hair on them. And if you're not experienced enough to realize how to mitigate those, you can lose money. So on your first deal, what I typically recommend people do is find something within driving distance of your, of your backyard. So three, three and a half hours driving time, as long as you don't live in a really tough state like California or Arizona. Um, is it tough here in Arizona? It's, oh, to get storage out here, I'm paying three and a half percent cap rate all day okay. on just like really tough facilities. It's, right. it's really tough. Um, find something that is like a, Cross the base, you know, first base hit. Don't try to get a crazy high cap rate. You're probably going to fall somewhere in the six and a half to seven percent range. Get a class C facility, maybe a class D, depending on where you are. Um, and then just start doing very basic value add. So non physical value add. Raise rents, uh, operate the facility yourself. If it's your first facility, I recommend you be the manager so that. You later on, once you start scaling your business, you know what the man- managers should be doing and how long it takes and what is expected of them. Because if you don't have that piece, you're never going to be able to manage managers. Yeah. And then make sure they have, again, there's two parts to every deal. And this is something that I learned from, again, another mutual friend of ours, Eddie Speed. There's the, there's the deal and then there's the financing. Mm-hmm. So make sure they have really good financing. Again, because storage is super... Um, lenders really like it because of the downside risk mitigation. There's really awesome options out there. Like I said, SBA loans, I will warn you, an SBA loan similar to like an FHA loan, they're going to want to know everything. They're going to want tax returns of the seller. They're going to want your tax returns. They're going to want your blood type, your firstborn kid, all this crazy stuff. But you can get into a facility with as low as 10% down. Can you do an SBA loan with each, for each facility? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's big. Yeah, so they'll cap you out after a certain amount. 
but that cap is usually somewhere between five and 10 million, depending on if you go 7A or 504. And by the time you get to that cap, you're already able to roll the, the original ones off to a CMBS market, reset, and then start with another you know, four or five loans from the SBA. Got it. All right. So then going back to me trying to buy my first one, obviously no longer in Phoenix. So um, what, I mean, is there a list that I pulled? I think you said InfoUSA earlier. Is that the list that I'm pulling? So InfoUSA was good. It was expensive. Um, I now, so storage lists are not like residential lists where you can just go online and type into some widget and it'll pump out a list like list source, right? There's a lot more caveats to it. So what I like to do is actually hire a data scientist. So someone that works for a list company, but is a one-on-one you know, consumer, customer relations, and will actually build your database for you as opposed to you just trying to plug some things in. Because the nice thing about these guys is they know how to manipulate the data in a way that wouldn't be apparent to us. So who we use now is Exact Data. They're out of Chicago. They're on the Inc. 500 list. Their office is not too far from ours, downtown Chicago. And what we do, we tell them a few things. Number one, I want self-storage properties. And the easiest way to find those are based off of land classification numbers. So there's two main classification systems. There's the SIC codes, which are the old school way of classifying land. And then there's the NAICS codes, which is like the newer school way of classifying land. So I believe the NAICS code that we go after is 530. 531130, that's uh, lessers of mini warehouse. So that's like your starting point. Then what I'll do is there's a lot of really good data out there that is free. So I'll go to the SSA webpage. So that's the Self Storage Association, they're the National Association of Self Storage Investors. And they usually will put out a list of the top 100 operators as well as the top 50 management companies. And then the second free source is the ISS, Inside Self Storage. Their webpage, they also print these top 100, top 50. So we'll, get, we'll download both these lists and then send them to our data scientists and say, hey, I need you to scrub out all of these investors and these managers because a REIT's not going to sell to us at a cap rate we want. A third-party management company is not going to allow their client to sell to us at a cap rate we want. Usually what will happen is these third-party management companies are also operators. So if they see that there's an offer on the table, they'll just come in and outbid you. So we don't yeah. even want to touch those guys. Got it. So in the United States, there's about 70,000, 72,000 self-storage facilities. Once we scrubbed out that entire list, um, and then we also remove Alaska and Hawaii because we don't market to those, we got to about 32,000 sellers to hit. From there, then we scrubbed out the any type of like mistake listings. So there'll be p- people that say, oh, this is an industrial warehouse, and it's not self-storage but it's classified under the same code yeah or it may be like a car wash or cold storage which we don't do yet cold storage is for like grocery stores it's a you know hub and spoke model for grocery stores so we don't need those types of properties once we do that then our list comes down to about 17 18,000 throughout the united states and that's who we hit got it and when you hit your mailing calling yeah so We'll skip trace, so we'll run all of the lists through Lead Sherpa or Skip Genie, depending on which is pr- producing better. Um, from there, then we'll send letters. We usually will hit them on a letter every three to six months. And the nice thing about storage is typically the owner is a lot older. Um, they've already usually retired once or twice. So the letter actually performs really well. The first campaign we did, uh, 
we had about an eight percent response rate, and then when we scrubbed out all the all the crap, if you will, um, we still are at like a three point seven or four percent response rate of like true qualified wow. leads. So the numbers were fantastic. Yeah. So then we'll also we up until recently we also were doing text message campaigns, but now with the changes in the TCPA laws, we no longer do that. We do have acquisition managers that do full cold calling. And then my favorite way of doing it is driving for dollars. Self-storage, historically not classified correctly. And there's a lot of operators out there that don't treat it like a real business. So you can't even find them online. You, the only way you can really find them is by driving past them. Or believe it or not, we'll get VAs that will just pull up Google Maps and like survey sections of GPS photos to say, okay, oh, here's six buildings that are pretty long. That's pretty most likely going to be a self-storage facility, but I don't see that they're listed. So then th those VAs will give us that list. We'll drive those areas and just hit them in person. Just go up, drop a card, say, hey, looking to talk to the owner. If it's the owner, half of the time, the owner's the one sitting behind the desk. The other half of the time, it's a manager. If it's a manager, we say, you know, we're looking to make an offer on the facility. Would you be willing to stay on as the manager? We always say that, even though we always fire them. The reason we say that is because then they won't be hesitant of passing, yeah, passing our letter along. Yeah. All right. So you get a hold of them, and then as the rest of it, like any other wholesale, figure out what the problems are, what their motivation is. Exactly. So you got to what is what is the main issue? The the interesting part that is different from residential is that there isn't a lot of distress in self-storage. It's such a cash cow that even if someone is really terribly managing their property, it's still cash flowing. Like it's, it's almost impossible to find distressed owners. So it's all about getting more down to what their true motivations are, not really the distress. You know, typically the, the people that sell to us, they're 65 plus years old. They've either already retired once or retired twice. And the main objection or it's not really objection but the main thing that we usually get out of them is i'm tired i want to retire and i want to travel those are the three main the next two biggest ones would be i want to leave something for my grandkids which then allows us to you know open up some conversations for seller financing um or they bought the facility and they had a family member managing it and they don't have the heart to fire the family member that's not doing well so they'd rather just sell the facility yeah so that's like the five main reasons that one I, I can totally see that one happens all the time yeah so you got all these storage units you're learning about the space you're an expert now mm -hmm. what is your opinion on storage wars yeah so <laughs> when i first started in storage like i was pretty pumped i wanted to do like this whole storage <laughs> wars thing but technology has recently swept over the storage space so yeah. all of our auctions are actually done online it's like an ebay system so one of our managers or one of our maintenance people they'll open the the unit they're not allowed to cross the barrier if you will so they'll take photos of the stuff they'll put it up online people bid on it and then they come and take their possessions this is another reason why i love storage so much so the major difference between storage and habitation real estate is that there's no expressed or implied warranties of habitation so because of that, all the laws are written in the owner's favor, as opposed to with residential real estate, where all the laws are written in the tenant's favor. So we, we're, we don't even fall under tenant-renter law at all. We actually fall under property law or lien law. So when somebody wants to come and rent a unit from us, 
they put their stuff in one of our units and by doing so they automatically give us a lien against their possessions in case they do not pay we usually have a five-day grace period to pay on the fifth day if you have not paid you are now automatically late there's a late fee assigned and then we send out a letter which is an auction notice and we say hey we're going to auction off your stuff in 30 days <clears throat> during those 30 days we put two circulations in like a local newspaper or a legal newspaper saying we're going to auction off this unit at this facility on this date and in that time if they don't come current then the buyer of that unit will actually have to put down a cleaning deposit so they will come in take all the possessions out and if they do not broom sweep that unit we get to keep that 100 bucks and then usually the new tenant is there waiting for the buyer to clean out the unit so that they can get into the units so our turnovers are super fast yeah. and there's no cost right there's no carpet there's no paint there's no marketing with a realtor and losing one month's commission i mean it's quick and usually we're able to you're not technically allowed to take a profit on the auctions any overage has to go back to the unit owner but what you can do in your lease is you can put a bunch of fees so you can say there's a late fee there is a lien fee, there's an auction fee, there's a Fernando's pissed fee, there's a <laughs> I want to take my girlfriend out to lunch fee. And once they pay, if there's anything left over on top of that, then we do have to send it to them or to a state unclaimed fund if they are not willing to um, give us their forwarding address. The second thing is that the leases are absolutely phenomenal. So all of our tenants are on month to month leases. And the way that all of the state laws are written is that if I take over a facility and I send out, hey, here's the new lease, they don't even have to sign it. If they do not agree to it, it automatically goes into effect or they can move out before that lease goes into effect. All of the laws are written in our favor. It's fantastic. All right. So I'm totally sold now. All right. So I'm going to go uh, into some of these questions before I do that, guys. We do have a sales training event uh, this month. So check it out. It's, it's the 24th. Uh, we're going to go over how to close more deals, how to make sure that the sellers are not going dark on you. And it's, we're spending so much money to get in front of these sellers. It's a waste. You're not locking up these deals. Uh, so first question, um, Queen Elevated Beauty, this is on Instagram, is what's an LP? So an LP is a limited partner. So when we go and raise capital for our self-storage deals, spe specifically the larger ones that we do that are in the 10 or... $15 million realm, that's a lot of money to put down. And I don't want to put down three and a half million dollars of my own cash on a deal. So what we do is we'll split up the ownership of that asset. We'll go to a syndication attorney, they'll file with the SEC for us. And then we'll raise capital from limited partners. And the, the limited partners, the reason they're called limited is because they can only stand to lose the amount of money that they have invested into the venture. So that means they can't sign on the loan, there can't be any type of carve outs for them where if something happens to the asset, then the bank could go after them. The general partner, which is the sponsors or, or my company, we are the ones that are on the hook for any downside risk. And the limited partners, they just it basically get to get mail, mailbox money. Yeah, the real mailbox money. The real mailbox money. Not the one they lie about at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. uh, Francisco Jasso, we're going to answer this question where we're pulling this from. Uh, Matthew Zhao, uh, have you ever used a no-key lock on your unit? Right. So to explain what a no-key lock is to the rest of the community, a no-key lock is an automated locking system. So 
The old school way of storage is you give these disc locks. They're cylindrical locks. It takes about 10 minutes to grind through them with an angle grinder if you need to cut them off. They're super safe. But if someone doesn't pay, then I have to bring one of my manager locks to overlock a unit. So now there's two locks on there so they can't get access to it. And then once they pay off their late due amount, then I have to hire somebody else to go out there and take the lock off so they can get access to their possessions. Wow. Now, what a Noki lock is, and this is how another example how technology is sweeping through the self-storage industry, a Noki lock is a lock that is hardwired into the unit. The tenants can open and close their unit with their phone, and if they don't pay, I have access to the Noki lock to overlock their unit with a deadbolt, and once they pay, I can automatically unlock that unit. So we do like Noki locks. I don't put them on any of my facilities yet because the cost is too high. I'm waiting for Janus. Janus is the name of the supplier that makes those locks. I'm waiting for them to drop their price or for more competitors to come into the space. Right now, the last time we priced it out, it came out to somewhere between $300 and $500 per unit. So on a thousand unit facility, that's a huge expense that in the timeline that I hold these things, is not worth it to put into, especially the, the fix and flip deals. If I'm gonna do a buy and hold deal and I'll you know build it from the ground up and I'll hold it for 15 plus years, then maybe that $300 a door makes sense. But right now, for our company specifically, no key locks don't make sense to us financially. Uh, and on YouTube, Candace Anu wants to know, are you working with self storage or are you building storage? So we do both. So I started off, buying existing facilities from mom and pop operators, turning them around, either doing a cash out refinance or putting them into a portfolio and selling them off. Now, because I want larger and larger units or larger and larger facilities, I can't really go out into the market and buy those because the cap rates are so compressed. As soon as you cross over 50 to 60,000 net rentable square feet, then all the REITs are also competing against you and they have unlimited money at basically zero cost of capital. And they don't need to make money. And they don't need to make money. They're literally buying these facilities because they're sitting on so much cash that if they don't deploy the cash, it erodes to inflation. So as long as they can make a return that is somewhat equal to inflation, they don't care. Yeah, you so, can't compete against the REITs. So that's why you see these REITs come in here and especially in Phoenix and in the Arizona markets and they're, they're buying these 100,000 square foot facilities for three and a half percent, four percent, four and a half percent cap rate. I'm never willing to buy at four and a half percent. I'd rather just put my money in the stock market and truly not deal with any issues. So I still wanted to grow our portfolio because our, our end goal, you know, we, we use traction in our company. Our 10 year BHAG is to be a $1 billion company that has roughly eight and a half million net rentable square feet of property. So I'm gonna have to hold some of these and it's easier to hold larger facilities that are 100, 150,000 square feet. But if I go out into the market to try to buy these, there's no way I can afford them or even win these bids. So what I found is if I build them, I could typically build them at a cost of nine to 10% cap rate internal. It equates to roughly a hundred bucks a foot is what we can build them for. Um, so yeah, that's when we'll, we'll build them. But right. Instant equity though. Oh yeah. I mean, here's a perfect example. So I'm, I'm still building one in the Chicago suburbs right now, Southern suburbs. Our total cost in the deal right now is 10 and a half million. We're going to, we're going to get certificate of occupancy permit end of September. And we've already got an offer from a buyer at $17.9 million. Yeah. 
that was the we were projecting to sell this thing at 17.7 million in five years so the fact that we're getting an offer at certificate of occupancy we don't have to take any lease up risk and we can not have to take any interest rate risk or any risk in the market and sell for above our target in five years our our LPs are, are pretty happy about that. Yeah, I bet. Um, and then, you know, we were talking about REIT just a moment ago. For those of you guys who don't know, Real Estate Investment Trust, this is where a bunch of people pull money together on Wall Street to buy real estate. And I, I learned about not being able to compete against these guys when I was looking at commercial space for myself. Yeah. And I'm trying to rent space. And I'm trying to negotiate with the guy. The guy's like, no, they're not negotiable. I was like, but the whole building's empty. And they said, well, they don't care. I was like, what do you mean they don't care? <laughs> it's like, they don't need cash flow right they're just buying properties just to have properties blew my mind um all right so uh so that uh uh so joshua kim on youtube you mentioned that historically it's done the best do you believe it will continue to do the best in the next 30 years absolutely again it just comes down to my when i look at investments my number one criteria is downside risk mitigation and we've seen already over the last three recessions that it is the most recession resilient real estate out there right now. The second piece is the availability of leverage. This is why we all got, got into real estate in the first place is to leverage bank money or other people's money to then take the benefit for ourselves. And self-storage is one that has had the best leverage potential over the last 30 years. And then you have the, the legal risk you know, everything basically starts on the West Coast, usually around San Francisco, as far as tenant rights go. And then slowly the wave goes east and it starts hitting other states and other large municipalities like Chicago. And the way things are prog progressing with rent restrictions and eviction moratoriums, eviction moratoriums for 18 months, but no tax payment moratoriums or mortgage moratoriums <laughs> like that doesn't seem fair. And we didn't experience any of that on the self-storage side. So I will continue to invest in storage probably for the rest of, the rest of my life, um, specifically for those reasons. And then it just comes down to headaches, right? I, I want to build a lifestyle business. I, I, I've done the grind. I've worked 80, 90 hours a week, and it's tough to sustain that. And storage is one of those that allows you to really leverage time for the same amount of income that comes in. You know, our first facility that we bought... I did the math, I was making about $2,008 per hour managing that facility. Whereas when I was managing my rental property holdings, I was making about $47 an hour. So like huge difference in time value of money for me. Right, so then what do you think is the biggest bottleneck, right? Like you're, you and Scott are obviously singing the choir of right. self-storage. What do you think is stopping people from jumping into it? Yeah, so in general, it's just going to be the larger purchase price amounts. You know, what I would consider a small self-storage facility is a million dollars. So that means that you have to raise anywhere between one hundred and fifty to 250000 as a down payment. But that's not necessarily the rule. I've wholesaled much smaller deals. I sold a deal last year. It was a $100,000 self-storage facility, right? I wholesaled it for twenty five grand. So there are smaller deals. That's the price of getting into a rental property. I think it just comes down to there's not a lot of readily available information about it. And even when I was first starting out, everybody thinks that 
to get to commercial, you have to really grind in the residential first, and you have to buy a bunch of multi or single families, and then you go to some small one to four unit multi families, and then after 20 years, you trade all that up into commercial. You don't need to do that. What I found is that every time you add a zero onto the deal, it makes it easier to close, it makes it easier to fund. Raising 50 grand is like pulling teeth, it's so difficult. Whereas raising 500,000 is so much easier. Raising 5 million is even easier than that. I mean, it's crazy how it works, but that's usually how it is. When people want to cut checks to be equity investors, especially the guys out there that are doing this as a real business, they want to cut big checks. And I can't tell you how many times I've had limited partners say, I don't get out of bed unless I'm cutting a $20 million check. And it's like, I, I can't get you a deal that you would cut a $20 million check on unless you're willing to do something that's programmatic and buy five to 10 deals with me at a time, you know? I'm ready to spend $20 million. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> uh, so Candace Anu wants to know, uh, how much does it cost to hire a data scientist? Yeah, so it's, it's basically the cost of the list. I think we're usually paying anywhere between 30 to 50 cents per lead. Um, but that's because we take pretty large volume. You know, I'm buying for the entire United States, uh, minus Alaska and Hawaii. The highest I've ever paid for like niche storage list was like $1.50 a lead. So it's not, it's not too bad, but it's the thing that I, I learned early on as a residential wholesaler is you're only as good as your data. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe you're only paying eight cents to list source per lead, but then half the leads are not deliverable. I'd rather pay a dollar fifty and get a ninety percent de- delivery rate as opposed to eight cents and get like a thirty percent de- delivery rate. Right, it's a totally different mindset, and and I think the way you answer your question right just kind of shows how much further ahead you are, right? Because she's looking at it probably as a wage. Gotcha. How much do you pay a data scientist for a wage? And these guys are just per data. Right. Or you're paying per contact info or whatever. Yeah, because with these niche lists, they want to get the list out the door and. I- eventually get you as a full-time, you know, someone that is a repeat customer. So they're not going to charge you up front unless you do a bunch of work, unless they do a bunch of work for you, and then you never end up buying a list anyway. Then you might get a charge, but I've never been charged as like a a wage for this data scientist. Yeah. Uh, And then Mon wants to know, organizational structure of your, of self-storage, do you, um, I guess, you mentioned you have one person working part-time managing a facility? Sometimes. So we have a lot of facilities that are fully automated. We'll use uh, property management software that allows tenants to rent on the phone, allows them to rent on a, a website, and then we'll pay for a call center to answer phone calls. What we found is that about 60% of our rentals happen over the phone. So what we realize is there's really no need for an on, you know, on-site office unless it's a big property, right? Yeah. So these big, you know, class A, fourth generation, regrade properties that I build, that's going to have a full-time manager on staff. But that manager is not really a property manager. They're more of like a salesperson trying to upsell to get that lease up all the way. And then once we're at about 90% stabilization, which is considered fully occupied in the self-storage space, then that person goes to part-time or completely gets, they get completely uh, removed from the operation. Yeah. Uh, and then Queen Elevated Beauty, a follow-up question on this is, where does one go about learning about all this? I mean, we talked about it a lot here, but if she wanted to become more proficient, where should she go? Yeah. So we recently kicked off a pretty awesome social media campaign. If you look up Impact Self Storage on Facebook or LinkedIn 
we post three to four educational videos per day on how to do self-storage, everything from marketing, acquisitions, uh, value-add, development, management, syndication, uh, and then your eventual exit. So I have about, I don't know, 12 hours of content that we've chopped up and we put onto our social media site. So if you guys want to check that out, feel free. Um, and then again, like we mentioned before, Scott Myers, really good friend, really good education program. You get a chance, buy his home study course, go to his, his, his courses and his summits. They're, they're, I still am a part of his mastermind. I still show up to the self-storage academies every once in a while, see if I can help out new guys. Um, and then the biggest thing that's helped me is always getting a mentor. You can either pay for the mentor or you can offer services for free. You know, there's, there's people that will offer paid mentorship. There's also people that like our company, where if you want to come and do a deal with us, you bring us a deal, we'll hold your hand all the way through and partner with you on that deal. So there's, there's a ton of ways to learn. The biggest thing is just get started. Do not wait. That's the biggest thing. Um, so you got 16 facilities. Who is operating above all the locations? Yeah, so we have uh, two offices, one in Chicago, one in Des Moines, Iowa. So in Des Moines, Iowa, we have a regional manager that oversees all of the properties, if you will. And then we have also started using third-party management on a few of our facilities as well. The problem with third-party management is typically it's the REITs that you're competing against are the ones that want to manage your facility. And the reason they want to do that is because they want a foot in the door once you are finally ready to sell. Smart. The problem with that, though, is that they usually charge minimums. So the minimum is going to be usually 2500 a month to 3000 a month. So they'll charge 5% or 2500 a month. So really, the only way that it makes sense is if you're bringing in about $50,000 a month in gross receipts to hire these large third-party managers. I have been sourcing and talking to smaller third-party managers and we have a really good relationship with a good friend of mine uh, that's in a part of one of my masterminds and he just started a third-party management company for uh, the self-storage space that is being neglected by these larger guys and he he has no minimums but he does charge anywhere between seven to twelve percent of gross receipts depending on the size of the facility so it really just depends on your goals i really recommend on your first facility you have to manage it yourself you have to you know, I've known people that have literally set up a cot in the back room of an office and have lived at their self-storage facility for a couple months just to like learn it that much. I, I would never do that, but you know, to each their own. And once you get that management down, then it really decides, it, it basically comes down to your, your goal. Are you looking to scale? Well, if you're looking to scale, management is the least valuable thing you can do with your time. The highest value you can do if you're looking to scale is getting deals under contract and getting them funded. That's that's basically where I spend all my time. I've been basically kicked out of every department of my own company, and all I'm allowed to do now is raise capital both on the equity and the debt side. Yeah, awesome. And then uh, Joshua Kim wants to know, what are the metrics you're paying attention to when you're divvying up the profits with investors? COC, IRR, equity, multiple? Yeah, so it depends on the type of investor that you have. The more sophisticated the investor, so these quasi-institutional investors, these can be things like registered investment advisors, investment clubs, uh, small family offices, small wealth management companies. They're going to be more interested in internal rate of return. Internal rate of return, for those that don't know, is basically a cash-on-cash analysis, but 
has an extra piece to account for time value of money. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow or a dollar a year from now. So those big guys are going to be more on the internal rate of return and then also partly equity multiple. Once you go to the more of the less sophisticated investors, people that, you know, they may operate in syndications, but they're only cutting a $25,000 check or a $50,000 check here. To them, IR is somewhat confusing because it's a very abstract concept. So it's easier for me to raise money with those types of investors by just using a straight equity multiple presentation saying, if you give me a dollar, I'll give you $2 back. Or if you give me $100,000, I'll give you $200,000 back at the end of the at the end of the deal. So not a lot of cash on cash return investors in my world. It's either going to be IRR for the more sophisticated and then equity multiple for those that are a little bit less sophisticated. Interesting. Had no idea. Uh, So then for you, what is your biggest struggle right now? Right. You've got all these things going on. What is what is keeping you up at night? What is what is a challenge for you? Yeah, capital. Capital is our biggest issue. Again, these are super capital intensive deals. I have 12 properties under contract right now, and I don't have the money to fund all of them. So right now, typically I can get anywhere between on the low side, 80% loan to value and on the high side, 90%, which means I still need to be bringing 10 to 20% to the table. And I have, deals. yeah. And so I have 12 deals that totally the, all of them together is going to be roughly $50 million. So I'm going to have to raise what, like five, five to $10 million. And that's like every quarter, right? So it's, it, that's the biggest issue. And the, we've been starting to change a lot in how we raise capital. I love bringing friends and family in. I love bringing in kind of less sophisticated investors, IRA, 401k investors, because I'm, I'm truly helping them out. The, the money that we make them, they can use that money. It's substantial for them. And in, in exchange for that, they're willing to take lower returns. Um, I'm sorry, they're willing to take higher returns, but it comes with a that added difficulty of having to get a lot of small checks, a lot of $50,000 checks. On the opposite end, I can go to a, you know, a, a family office that's willing to take a lower return, you know, anywhere between 12 to 16%. And they are willing to fund all with one check. You know, they, they'll write a five, a 10, a $20 million check. But the problem is they want full control. So that instead of me being a, you know, a 50-50 split with my investors, all of a sudden it's, 95% ownership to the family office and then 5% for me and then all these complicated hurdles where, okay, once you get the family office 10% return, then instead of a 5% ownership, I go up to 15%. And then once I get to 14% return to them, then I go up to 30% and then 18% return to them, then I go up to 40%. It's like this super complicated structure that allows them to hold return and make sure that basically I'm taking all the risk and they're getting all the benefit. Right. Like a hard money lender. Yeah. So it's, 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 you know, it's both sides have their advantages. It's to the point now that we have so many deals coming in that I don't have time to raise capital from the mom and pop guys on every deal. So I'm going to have to give up quite a bit of ownership on these deals so that I can get single check writers into the, into the gates. So what are you doing to generate more revenue? Or generate more capital, like to raise more private capital. Yeah, so we're completely rebranding all of our companies and using basically a a super polished, you know, we're paying third-party consultants for our logo, our 
brand, our one-liner, um, all of our social media sites, we've paid a bunch of money to do high-quality content, basically becoming a thought leader in order, you know, educate to dominate, right? Mm -hmm. You do a very good job of this, Steve. Thank you. So we, we just basically looked at people like you and some of the other, you know, friends that we have in our various masterminds that are raising money at this level and seeing what they're doing. We've also paid third-party consultants that one side of their business is to help super ultra high net worth families set up family offices. And then on the other side of the office, they're teaching us how to go after those people. So kind of like an insider on, on mm -hmm. both sides. We probably won't be ready for the true institutional partners for another five or 10 years. This is going to be your, you know, sovereign wealth funds, your insurance companies. So right now we're kind of playing in the middle, kind of the mid market, Fam family offices, wealth management companies, registered investment advisors. Incredible adventure you're going through. I know. <laughs> um, and then what, how do you stay motivated? Cause I mean, what do you got going on right now? I know you got, a, your goal is a billion dollars in, in control, but you could kind of take it easy, right? Yeah, I mean, we could we could take it easy right now, but I've always been a super intrinsically motivated person, and I, you know, for those that haven't read Traction out there, I really recommend you read it by Gino Wickman. It talks about how to run your your company on an entrepreneurial operating system, and one of the key points of that system is having goals that are smart, specific, measurable, achievable, reasonable, and timely. And then breaking them down over timelines. So a 10-year goal that goes down to a three-year picture that goes to a one-year plan, 90-day rocks, weekly scorecard metrics, and then daily you know, score, personal scorecard metrics that everybody needs to hit. So when you're hitting those metrics, that's what's really good. And the billion-dollar side of our business, that is not truly our 10-year goal. That's just like what it would equate to. What our actual goal is to help 100,000 families, right? And to do that, we're going to do it via the self-storage model, helping the local community. It's a hyper-localized business. 90% of our tenant base comes from a five-mile radius from around our facility. So if we're going to be able to make money from a local community like that, we want to be sure to give back to that local community. And that's what really keeps us motivated. As a, That's why we're called Impact Self-Storage, because we want to make an impact on the local communities that we invest in. That's, that's awesome. What is your superpower? I think my superpower is I got a big mouth. I'm, I can work a room pretty pretty easily. Um, I, I, I'm my PI is a three sigma captain. Uh, Gary Harper called me a power networker, so I think that's my three sigma captain. So is it the A is off the charts. A is off the charts, and then I have a, a cutback D, very small corporate hook. Got it. But it's three sigma off. Interesting. All right. So there you go. Um, is there a book you've gifted more than any other? Oh, man, I knew you were going to ask this question. Can I, can I give three answers? Of course. Okay. Number one is Principles by Ray Dalio. Absolutely fantastic book. Ray Dalio runs Bridgewater Capital. It's one of the largest hedge funds in the world. One of the most successful track records. Yeah, it's the most successful track records. And the way his book is fantastic because it's broken into three parts. You have... The first part, which is just like his autobiography, he in the book himself, he tells you to skip that portion. I don't I tell you, don't skip it because it, it teaches you a lot about Gives him. You the context. Yeah. Then he has his principles for work and then his principles for life. And the part that really made an impact on me was the principles for life side. I 
my work world is extremely structured. It's, you know, it follows traction. It follows all these rules, processes, and procedures. But then I realized in my personal life, I have no processes or procedures whatsoever. So I started using his book to help me with that. The second one is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. He was the lead FBI hostage negotiator for 10 years. His book talks about tactical empathy and how to really be a good listener. Actually, before I came on the podcast, Steve actually gave me a book on tactical empathy and how to be a good listener. So it's right here next to me. Um, Absolutely fantastic book. It's not all about business. Uh, You can use what you learn for business, but the part that I liked is that it made me a better listener, not only around my friends, but my families, my significant other. Um, It it affected all sides of my life. Um, And then the third one, I'm torn. Recently, I've been reading a lot of autobiographies, and I, I read both Sam Zell's book and um, Steve Schwartzman's book. So what it takes, or whatever it takes, I think it's Steve Schwartzman, and then Sam Zell's is Am I Being Too Subtle? Both real estate you know, conglomerates, if you will, some of the largest companies in the world, and it's so interesting to see the, the principles that they distilled down over 50, 60 years of practice and how you can implement it in your own life. Here's a perfect example. In Steve Schwarzman's book, there's one line that stuck out to me that said, time hurts all deals, no matter what. So if, if you have a deal, if you just let that deal sit on the shelf, it starts getting worse and worse and worse and worse, no matter what. So we implemented based on that book in our company that as soon as a deal comes in, we're doing everything we can to get it to the finish line within 30 to 45 days because mm-hmm. the longer it takes, then all of a sudden things start coming up and issues and sellers start getting skittish. It's just not. Isn't it not funny how that works? If you can just close them fast, you know. <laughs> yeah, close it as fast as possible. And uh, I mean, the, the, some of the favorite words I've heard, right? If we're doing a flip or, you know, it's a listing, it's like, we take cash. Yes. Can we close early? Yes. yes. Right? Like it's always been, and I've had deals that died because literally, somebody died yeah, there you go right <laughs> right like it, as soon as the, and that's always been in the back of my mind so it's always been like can we close early yes like what <laughs> well, and then, go right now and then even after the closing side let's say it's a deal that you're holding or you're flipping or you're rehabbing like for example that deal that i'm building in chicago right now our monthly interest payment is fifty six thousand dollars a month so like every one month delay is an extra fifty six thousand dollars of expense that we just got hit with or every day is two thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I I got this question from Joshua Kim here on YouTube. I think it's a great question. Is what did you? What makes you such a great networker? So, believe it or not, when I was younger, I was somewhat of a shy person, and I didn't like how I was timid and not able to really be fluid in my environment, especially when there was other people around. So I. I focused heavily in high school on basically bettering myself. That's actually how I found the uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad book in my school library. I went to like the self-help section, if you will, and started taking out every book that I could find. Um, so one of the books that I read was called How to Talk to Anyone by Leo Landes, I think. The other one was uh, the definitive book of body language because you know, there's two sides of it. It's what you say, but then it's also what you show. And then mm-hmm. on the flip side, it's what you hear from people, but then also what you see. Yeah. And sometimes those can be different. And people with their body language, they may show you what they're truly fe- feeling, but then say something different to either, you know, beat around the bush or to mislead you. So those two things helped quite a bit. 
And then just understanding just the social dynamics of, you know, how we communicate. And nowadays it's getting even harder and harder because we're going to social media and everything's not a real connection. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a really good book on this called uh, Talking to Strangers. So I think what makes me a really good networker is the ability to connect with someone very quickly, identify what is important with them because of, you know, the things I learned with those books, tactical empathy, actually listening, and then seeing how I can add value. And then the flip side of this is if I realize I cannot add value to them or they cannot add value to me, very quickly I cut off that interaction in a polite way. I say, hey, it's really nice meeting you. You know, if there's anything in the future that you think I may be able to help you out with, let me know. But for right now, I'm going to go ahead and, and start making more connections in the room. And so I'll work, you know, I'll get through 40, 50 people in about an hour at a networking event. Really? Yeah. So I got to ask then, on the B on your PI, where is that? It's right behind the A. So it's right, right behind the A. So you are super social. Yeah, yeah. Very social. So interesting. That's the part that like was hard for me because in the beginning when I would go to these large you know, conferences and networking groups where you only have 15 minute bathroom break to talk to somebody. Like I would, I would see myself getting caught in a conversation with someone that I knew wasn't going anywhere. You know, they do, you know, I don't know. I don't even have a good example. You just don't have the same interests. Yeah. We don't have the same interests. There's no way I can add value to them and there's no way that they can add value to me yet. I, we're, both of us are like sludging it out for 15 minutes because it's awkward to say goodbye. Like, just get over that and just keep moving. I asked this question because for me, my A is really high, right? I'm a two sigma, one or two sigma A. Mm -hmm. I think a one. One sigma A and then uh, negative one sigma on the B. Oh, really? Okay. So I'm antisocial, right? You're more task oriented. Yeah. So like, to. I'm totally fine walking away from conversation and I'm pretty good at reading body language. What I'm really bad at is not recognizing how I'm hurting someone. Okay. <laughs> in a conversation well, you're walking quickly. away. <laughs> yeah, so that's where I, my weakness is. But that's why I asked what the B is, because that's that's me. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, so Joe says great interview. So thank you, uh, Joe. And then Joshua has a question for me, which is unusual. Uh, what's my biggest takeaway from interviewing you? And I would say that I have a blind spot for self storage. I was actually excited about doing this interview because we've had almost I'm trying to think of like everything real estate we've talked about yeah except for self-storage i'm trying yeah. to think anything else that we haven't talked about uh maybe property management but that's not really an exciting topic um so i think I, we've talked about everything in real estate except for self-storage so uh joshua to answer your question i've got this massive blind spot for self-storage where i'm gonna have to definitely pick your brain more when sure. you're back here <laughs> In a few days. A few days. <laughs> <laughs> so he's flying back to Chicago to do a charity event. Correct. And flying back on Sunday right. for CG Collective Genius on Monday here in Phoenix. That's right. Um, so I want you to think about what you want to leave the listeners with while I make a couple of quick announcements. Guys, if you got value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. I say this every show, but I really mean it. I'm looking over here. We got 16 likes, guys. I need you guys to like, subscribe, share, comment because it really does help us help more people. Fernando's got a core value of impact is named this company impact self storage. I want to create a hundred millionaires, but I can't do it alone. I need your guys' help. Uh, we do have our all day sales training again, September 24th. That's Friday, three Fridays from now, 8:30 AM, 5:30 PM. I can teach you everything that I know about how to close more deals. People consistently tell us that they're closing 30% more transactions after working with us. If your business is like mine or like yours, 30% increase in revenue is almost 100% increase in profits, yeah. right? You guys can't afford not to come. 
Um, and then we got Faquan Bilal next week. We're gonna be talking about tax liens and notes. Last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Speed of implementation. Don't don't get stuck in the analysis paralysis. If you want to do storage, get out there, start talking with brokers today. Literally just Google self storage brokers in your market. To even go buy them a cup of coffee, uh, sit down and pick their brain, and then start making offers. That's awesome. And there's no shortage of self storages right. nearby. Uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so uh, you can go to our website, impactselfstorage.com. That's also our social media handles. You can impact Self Storage on Facebook and LinkedIn is where we put a lot of the uh, educational content. And then I, I don't do this often, but I realize that a lot of people don't take me up on this, so it's, I'm not too afraid. I'll give you guys my cell phone number if you guys want to reach out. Area code 630. Steve's smiling at me like, don't do this. Area code 630 That is my cell phone. If you text me, I will respond. That's awesome. I think you're going to regret that. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys for watching. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve.